I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to New Mexico House Floor Minority Leader Ryan Lane, an attorney who represents San Juan County. We'll be talking about how he's approaching this year's 60-day session of the New Mexico legislature. We'll take a look at many of the big-ticket items lawmakers are discussing as they set about crafting an historically large budget. Totaling $9.4 billion in recurring spending, an 11.9% increase from the last fiscal year. There's no shortage of ideas on how best to spend that money. And that doesn't include the one-time non-recurring funds that'll be doled out this year. Unlike 30-day sessions, which happen in even-numbered years and are focused nearly exclusively on the state's budget, 60-day sessions allow any legislator in the House or Senate to introduce any bill they'd like. As a result, many are pitching their ideas to address some of the state's most pressing issues. Education, public safety, early childhood development, bail reform, water conservation, and energy, just to name a few. We'll talk to Minority House Floor Leader Lane about all of those things and more. We'll also talk about the state's land-grant permanent fund, sometimes referred to as the Rainy Day Fund, which has long been closely guarded by legislators, though that may be changing. Maybe a little, anyway. Lane, who served in the legislature since 2021, currently serves as a member of the House Education, House Judiciary, House Printing and Supplies, and House Rules and Order of Business Committees. This week, I'm grateful to have House Minority Floor Leader Lane joining us. House Minority Floor Leader Lane, thanks for making the time to join us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. What do you think are the most important issues that need to be tackled in this 60-day session? Well, I think there's a few things. I think we need to pay serious attention to education. I think that's sort of the foundation for everything else. Um, I know there's a lot of concerns around uh, crime in New Mexico, so I think we need to focus in that area as well. And then I think the third one I would say is we, we need to focus on continuing to build a robust economy. Can you talk a little bit um, about your ideas on spending or investing this historically large budget? I mean, essentially, it's a budget that that we've never seen before. Yeah, the oil and gas revenues have been tremendous. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, revenue we had anticipated anticipated. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of things we need to have a serious discussion now that we have so much, uh, capital about doing real and meaningful tax reform. Um, you know, I think there's been a desire to do that for a number of years in this building, but we've never really had the the capital to be able to do it. And I think now is the time. And that's, and that's something that I would consider to be a, you know, a long-term investment. If we can, if we can change some of these, these tax laws, uh, to make things easier for working class people to attract businesses. Those are the kind of long, long range changes that, that make a big difference. To your mind, what would that 
that look like? So right now, New Mexico is is unique in that we tax business to business. Um, we call it pure mating, whereas you know, like Colorado, for example, they don't have those kind of tax schemes. So let's say you're a small business and you know you you need a CPA to prepare your taxes. Well, um, you get charged GRT gross receipts tax on on that. Let's say you you have outside attorney who who drafts your contracts and, and reviews things and you have to pay GRT on those services. And so it's it's trying to give our smaller locally owned businesses the same com- competitive advantages as bigger corporations because they they do all that in-house and so they, they don't have to pay tax on those kind of services. Um, so that would be a big one if we could eliminate the GRT pyramiding. I think we also should look at um, expanding our our income tax brackets. Cause right now in New Mexico, if you make 25,000 or more, you're like in the second highest tax bracket immediately. And that's, that's pretty harsh towards middle-class families. And so I think we should look at expanding those numbers. So that way you don't accelerate into that second highest tax bracket quite so quickly. If you're a working family. Kind of moving that second highest tax bracket a little higher up the scale. Huh? I think, you know, something more like maybe in the 75,000 range makes sense. I mean, then, then middle-class families are still paying taxes, but they're not paying as high a rate as they are right now. We're still working. You mentioned education. We're still working to deal with the Yazi Martinez ruling. Do you anticipate any legislation this year to address that? Well, I think so. There's a lot of funding that is, that's going towards the Yazi and Martinez lawsuit. Um, I think they're uh, you know, there's another initiative that I'm helping sponsor a bill that would change the high school graduation requirements. And I think that actually is going to bring um, some needed change to at the high school level that can help address some of those deficiencies that are outlined in the Yazi Martinez lawsuit. What sort of uh, changes to the requirements? So it does a couple of things. Um, one is it it removes algebra two as a as a graduation requirement, um, if you look at the number of jobs in 2023 that require Algebra 2, it's like something like 14%. It's an extremely low number. Um, most higher ed institutions uh, don't see it as necessary. And so we sort of created this artificial barrier. Um, so I think we need to have a system where if kids are interested in math or engineering or STEM, they they absolutely have the, the ability to take those those advanced math courses. But if a kid's interested in, you know, something else, then um, I don't see any reason why we need to make that a uniform requirement across the board. The other thing this bill does that I think is pretty cool is um, it creates as a part of the, the credits, uh, this new idea of having two uh, local credits. So each district would decide uh, two courses that they think are important in their communities. I mean, that's financial literacy. Um, you know, maybe that's, you know, foreign language, whatever that looks like. As uh, somebody who, who suffered through uh, a year of algebra two, yeah. uh, my junior year in high school, and it was the bane of my existence. Um, uh, I think you have my support. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and the other thing, you know, I appreciate that. The other thing I think is, that we're trying to move towards is, is for for the last several decades, it's like we've had this one size fits all approach to education. And, and I don't know if you have kids or not, 
um, Damien, but I have two sons and, and they couldn't be more different from each other. And to give them the exact same education, uh, I don't think does justice to them. So one of the things this, this bill does is it, it puts more ownership for our, our high school students to, to sort of decide what they want their educational path to look like. And I think that'll lead to kids being more, more involved, more plugged in, more willing to, to learn and show up. So I think there's some, some much needed changes around that area. It sounds like it, it also could have potential to uh, improve graduation rates. Yeah, it it should. Um, You know, I think both in terms of removing barriers that, that don't really serve a purpose, but also giving kids more ownership over their own educational path, I think is going to encourage kids to stay in school longer. It also seems like uh, I know down here there's a, a real big push, and we're seeing it in other places around the state um, toward CTE, career and technical education, yeah. um, and kind of those opening up those pathways to careers that may not involve, you know, a, a four-year college education, yeah. for instance. No, I think that's super important. So, you know, I was born and raised in Aztec. And they, they have actually, I'm, I'm proud of them. They have a pretty cutting edge CTE program. So they, they offer, it's either 12 or 14, they call them pathways. So when you're a sophomore in high school, let's say you're interested in nursing. So your, your sophomore year of high school, you would take the normal classes you would, you know, your Englishes and, and, you know, history and all that, but then you take uh, a nursing course and then your junior year, you take an even spe- more specialized nursing course. And then like your senior year, you're actually in the workplace um, doing whatever of those, you know, 12 or 14 pathways you want. And they have anywhere from nursing to um, computer science, there's uh, like a business track, and then there's, you know, some of the trades as well. So I think those CTE pathways are, are pretty interesting too. And I hope that becomes more of the norm. It used to be that the permanent fund or the 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 land grant permanent fund or the the rainy day fund was almost entirely hands off. It was it was the forbidden fruit, and there were lawmakers, uh, particularly in Senate Finance, that uh, guarded it very very closely. Is that uh, do you get the sense that it still is the forbidden fruit? Uh, that that's still the case. What's your sense? You know, I, it's it's interesting. I think we need to be careful with that because if if you understand the purpose of the fund, it is to it's it's built on the premise that one day the extractive industries are going to run out of things to extract, and so we need to have uh, a long term supply of revenue to fund public education. So it's a balance. Like we we want to make sure that that we're not just sitting on money just to sit on money for some unknown future generation, but we also need to make sure that we do have a a permanent source for funding public education. So I, I do think that there's more of a push to, to tap into that fund, but I think we need to be cautious about it, um, particularly um, given how much additional revenue we have right now. With bipartisanship in mind, do you think that there is a balance that could be struck that would satisfy both sides? Well, I mean, after the constitutional amendment passed now, now they, now there's six and a quarter percent being siphoned off every year. Um, 
for uh, early childhood uh, so, education? Well, there's 5% for, for public ed, and then that additional one and a quarter percent that passed, 60% is for um, is for early ed, and 40% is for K-12. through So I, I, I think we're siphoning enough right now. I think what the question is, maybe are, are we, have we gone too far? In an editorial um, talking about <laughs> extractive industries, the Albuquerque Journal called this the state's latest and possibly last boom cycle. What do you make of that? If you can predict the oil and gas industry, I want to know what stocks you're trading. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, well, we've seen we've we've ridden the the waves. Uh, the the boom and bust yeah. cycles. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I, w- I will say this: technology. That's the that's the beauty of technology. Is it unlocks things that we never thought was possible. So the Permian Basin, it w- it was thought to be a, a dead and archaic basin, um, not that long ago. You know, fifteen years ago, and then technology advances, and all of a sudden there's there's a new way to to make extracting. Um, efficient and affordable again. And then all of a sudden you have this new boom that nobody ever saw coming. So that's why I say like, if you can predict the oil and gas industry or technology, even like I, I want to pick whatever stocks you're, you're selecting because you're one of the few. <laughs> and, and now we're, we're basically nipping at uh, Texas heels, you yeah. know, uh, as the, the second largest oil producing state. So yeah, we passed North Dakota and now just behind Texas. And some years, the number of barrels we're turning out are, is pretty comparable. Yeah, it is. You know, it's not that far off. Yeah, then that's that, that's a big reason why I have such an influx of revenue right now. If you got a, a gimme where you were just guaranteed a unanimous vote of approval, what would you ask for? What's on your wish list? As far as policy goes? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is I think given that, you know, almost half of our population is on Medicaid, you know, and I think the average median income for a family of four in New Mexico is somewhere around 55,000, you know, so we're one of the poor states. You know, if I had a magic wand, what I would do is give parents more, uh, more choices over their kids' educational futures. You know, right now, by and large, the way our educational system works is whatever zip code you happen to be born into, that's the school that that thou shalt must attend. And, and sometimes that's great. You know, if you live in a good neighborhood and there's charter schools, there's traditional schools, there might be some specialized high schools, but what about all the poor kids that live in rural areas and and don't have any other options, but a local failing district. So that's, that's a magic one. I would, I would give is to give parents more ownership over their children's educational future. You mentioned um, Medicaid, which is, uh, kind of, kind of uh, a problematic area right now for a lot of families uh, who might be losing coverage. Um, do you think there's any way that that the state legislature can do anything to help out those families that have relied on it for these years and and now might be losing it? I think that we need to take a a serious and aggressive look at the Medicaid reimburse, reimbursement rates. Uh, because what I've like my local docs up in the Farmington area, what they tell me is they they basically lose money on Medicaid patients. They they have to rely on private pay providers and, and or private pay patients to to uh, cover their overhead. And and when we 
have that kind of situation, that means, you know, a couple of things that the Medicaid patients are going to have a harder time um, having docs because less docs are going to be apt to want to take Medicaid patients. Um, but the other thing is, is if, if you're losing money on a segment of your, your patient pool, then that's harder for docs to stay in private practice. And so they, they have one of two choices, either they, they sell and move out of state or they sell and, and go in house with a big corporation hospital model. Neither one of those are good outcomes for, for anybody in New Mexico. So I think we need to look at that Medicaid reimbursement rate and we need to make sure that those, that those uh, monies are actually making it down to the local docs. If you're uh, just tuning in, we're talking to House Minority Floor Leader uh, Ryan Lane. Now I want to kind of do some rapid fire, you know, just some of the, the hot topics that are being kicked around this legislative session. Um, let's start with bail reform. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, bail reform, on that? Yeah. You know, I think we, we've got to tackle, and we can call it whatever we want, but we've got to tackle this problem we have of career criminals that are are perpetually being released prior to trial. That's, that's really the source of the problem. So whether that's bail reform, whether that's pretrial release, um, whether it's the data going into the pretrial release programs, um, there's a number of, of different, and there's some presumption bills out there, but at the bottom line, when we have these career criminals, there's no reason why they should be released waiting trial. I think we need to revisit that concept. What about the um, reproductive health clinic plan for Las Cruces? You know, New Mexico already has uh, a number of, of private providers. And so I'm not sure why we need to do something as controversial as use taxpayer funds. Um, talk to me about bipartisanship in this session. You know, I, I think this is something that that New Mexicans, frankly, are frustrated with um, and that they expect. I think they're going to continue to expect even more so out of their their elected officials. So this idea that that we judge a, a bill or a policy or even a person based on the, the initial between your or after your name, whether an R or a D, it's to me, it's just an absurd proposition. I mean, we don't really do that anywhere else in society. You, you tend to find people that you trust, that you like, that you you feel like are moving in the good, in a good or right direction. And those are typically who you make friends and who you associate with. And so I think that culture needs to change in the roundhouse. I think we need to embrace more of the idea that if, if there's a problem facing New Mexico, then let's figure out a solution and, and let's get behind it. And, and irregardless of, of party politics. And how well do you and your caucus work across the aisle? Um, actually pretty well. Um, we have a number of members that are co-sponsoring bills with members from the Democratic Party. Um, I know there's been a lot of discussions. We have ranking members on committees that that work with the chairs. And so, yeah, I, I think I think there's an effort to try to do that and make it a practice. And kind of with that in mind, let's talk budget compromises. Talk to me about about striking a, a deal you know, when it comes to crafting a budget? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a challenging one because conservatives, we, we tend to believe in fiscal responsibility and limited government and that those provide the the most liberty and freedom for individual citizens. We have so much revenue right now that I think there there's a balance. So 
you want to make sure you have enough in your savings account, so to speak, to be able to to responsibly fund government in the short term, the next few years, in case something happens unexpectedly. But you also don't want to sit on such a huge nest egg where we've we've extracted all these dollars out of taxpayers in the form of taxes. And then we just sit on them instead of putting them back to work in our communities. So that, that's the balance that we're looking for as conservatives is make sure we've got enough to be responsible to our citizens in the short term. But also we want to get those dollars back to work in our communities. I know lots of lawmakers have been talking about security and some are concerned about security in light of the Solomon Pena arrest. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you violate the law, you should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I think law enforcement did a fabulous job of of taking care of that quickly. I think we all appreciate that. Um, and that's, you know, part of ongoing concerns in Albuquerque. It just highlights that crime is a real problem in Albuquerque. And and it took, you know, some high profile homes, I think, to really highlight that. But that's the reality that many, many neighborhoods in Albuquerque live with day in and day out. And that's why we needed to put our heads together to try to figure this out. Do you think that's why public safety has become such a front burner issue this session? I think that it's been bubbling for a, for a few years, frankly. Um, it's not a new problem. Um, the problem is the solutions I think we've put forth in the past haven't been effective. And so um, I think this is near the top of most citizens' concerns is, you know, if I go out in the evening and it's dark and I'm alone to the grocery store, I shouldn't have to be constantly looking over my shoulder. That's that's a problem to me. Talk to me about the the recent shakeup in committee chairs this year and, and what impact that might have on the overall shape of the session. You know, I wasn't privy to the speaker's thought process on that. Um, I think we do have have some good chairs, um, but we'll see as bills start going through how that how that works out. So there's definitely was some some changes, no doubt about it. And then finally, I, I want to ask you about serving minority communities and um, how lawmakers can better do that. Well, I think we need to be responsive and open to to what the different needs are across New Mexico. Um, Not everybody's needs are the same. And so I think we need to have an open mind on that front. And uh, I think we also need to look at how also is is government inhibitor as well. I think oftentimes we think of government swooping in and and saving everybody, but sometimes government's part of the problem, just trying to to put more, more liberty and freedom back in the people's hands. Is there anything you want to add that we haven't talked about today? So I think we covered a pretty good breadth of topics. We 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 certainly hit some of the big ones. So, yeah. um, well, thanks again, House Minority Floor Leader Lane, for your time today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, appreciate the, the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Forward to future discussions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing some of the biggest stories of the week and how we set about reporting them. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to House Minority Floor Leader Ryan Lane for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. 
You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.